Well, it's my pleasure to be with you this evening. I've been looking forward to this for a good while now, and I'm finally glad that it's came to reality. Uh, I want to thank the elders so much for the invitations they've extended to me to be here this weekend. And let me thank you who are here tonight. On a Friday night, there are people here, almost filled up this building, to come and hear the gospel preached. And that means a lot. There's other places that you could be tonight, but that shows me and every one of us here of how you place importance on spiritual things. And that means a great deal to every one of us that are here who love our God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. We'll take our first reading from there. Romans chapter 1. There are some in the audience tonight who came from great distance to be here. And that is very encouraging to me and to all of us here. No one as far as Bernard Benson, who is here from the Gardendale Church. He's not here because of me, per se. We just, we just uh, coincidentally came to, to Jacksonville on the same weekend. But Bernard worships with us and hears me preach every week. And I appreciate him being here one more time to hear me preach again. I appreciate him so much. He's a great encouragement to me also as well. I know he is to you that know him also. These lessons that I'm going to present to you this weekend are going to be very challenging. I make no bones about that. But it's not me really challenging you. It's going to be the Scriptures. Because all I'm going to do is try to present the truth of God's Word as I read it, as the Holy Spirit has revealed it. And they're going to challenge us. Because we live in a culture today that is trying to rob away from us the firm foundation of faith upon which we stand. And we cannot allow that to happen. And the only thing that's going to keep us from being uprooted is our diligent and steadfast belief in the Word of God as it has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit as we hold in our hands here tonight. So tonight, I'm just going to tell you on the front end that I'm going to challenge you. But it's a challenge that we all need to hear. I don't know if we think about it very often, but about every 60 years, there's a change in our culture. That is societal culture, if you will. And I'd like to first just begin by giving you an illustration. Now, I'm from the Birmingham, Alabama area. Gardendale is just a few miles just north of Birmingham. I want to take you back in history 60 years to Birmingham, Alabama. Let's just say if I went back 60 years and I went anywhere in the greater Birmingham area and I preached a sermon on homosexuality and the sin of it. Do you know that if I went anywhere in the Birmingham area and preached that sermon, at the end of that sermon, every person would come to me, thank me for that sermon, accept it, and pat me on the back for preaching. And that would be absolutely true. But at the same time, in that 60-year period in the greater Birmingham area, if I'd went the next week and preached a sermon on how God shows no partiality and all races are equal before him, do you know I may not have made it out of Birmingham alive? And that's the truth. Though that God is totally impartial to all races is true as well. But 60 years ago, that sermon would not have been accepted. And I may not have made it out of town alive. Fast forward 60 years into the future. Let me take that same sermon into the greater Birmingham area regarding homosexuality and let me preach that sermon. Do you know that there's probably not one person 
that would come up and appreciate me preaching that sermon. There's not many people that would have patted me on the back and told me thank you for doing that. You know what? I may not have made it out of there without being beaten. However, if I would have turned around and preached that same sermon in regard to how God shows no partiality, do you know that everyone in the audience would have come up and appreciated that, patted me on the back, and thanked me for preaching that sermon? All my point is is that do you see how drastically culture can change within a 50 to 60 year period? And we don't always recognize that, do we? But it's true. And if you see, if we allow the societal culture of our day to dictate to us what's right and wrong and normal, we'll always be a people in constant flow. We'll always be a people who are changing and evolving, and we'd be these people who are just living in confusion and chaos. Because as you look around in our world and our society, guess what we see? Confusion and chaos in an ever-changing societal culture. But there again, at the same time, if we'll just look to God and to his word, that same God who says homosexuality is a sin, but that same God says that there's no impartiality. Every person, every race, every person that exists upon this earth is all equal, which is absolutely true. If we just keep looking to that same God and looking to his word, what we will be is a people who are steadfast. We'll be a people who are always consistent in regard to our moral compass because the very one who created morality, God himself, is dictating who we are. And brethren, that must be where we are because we live in a world that is trying to pull us away, change us, and redirect us in regard to our moral compass all the time. And we cannot do that. We cannot let societal culture do that. We must let God and his ever-changing word always dictate who we are, where we're going, and who we need to be along the way. And tonight, what I want to talk to you about is remaining godly in a world that is based largely on cultural acceptance. And we can do it. We can. Let me talk to you about three things tonight that are major areas to where the culture of our society is trying to pull us away. And number one, let's just start with what we've already talked about. And that's homosexuality. There is a great push in our societal culture today to normalize homosexuality. And what Satan is doing is, is he's using these things as a very, very effective tool, at least in his arena, to normalize such things. So if you live in our societal culture, as we all do, and you actually get, you know, turn on the TV or even go outside the house, we're all victims to this push and this agenda. And as God's people, no matter what society tells us, we must see homosexuality as a sin. Why? Well, because God does. This is a familiar picture that we see on our TV screens, isn't it? We see these pride parades that are, you know, in all of these cities. I'm sure Jacksonville probably has one too. Everybody else has one. And we see these day in and day out, and what the, what the message is is that being gay is okay. That it's just okay to be a homosexual. But God says that being gay is not okay. And there again, where are we going to get our moral direction from? Are we going to get it from the world? Or are we going to get it from the God who created us? 
there in your Bibles as you turn to Romans chapter 1. Look with me there as Paul writes, generally speaking to these Gentiles here in Romans chapter 1. And what he's doing is, is he's speaking of how these Gentiles generally had turned themselves away from the Creator and turned to the creature and become idolaters. And because they had allowed themselves to become idolaters, then as we pick up our reading in verse 26, he gives us some more information in regard to their moral compass. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. When you read those two verses right there, can anybody... Even, even, even if the slight inkling say that God says that being gay is okay? Well, absolutely not. It says right there that God doesn't agree with that. God says that's totally unnatural. That's a vile passion. It's just as unnatural as taking, this. I think this is a very simple illustration. And I think everyone gets it. Do you know Legos only go together one way? I don't, I'm not going to be very specific about this, but you can take Legos, and even kids understand this. Legos only go together and stay together one way, right? If you put them together another way, it just falls apart. Why? Because it's not made to do that. It's unnatural. In the same way, when he says men are burning for men and women are burning for women, that's totally unnatural. You weren't created that way. And it's a vile passion that you've given yourself over to because you've allowed yourself to turn away from the God who created you and turn to yourself as being the God of your life. And just so that we understand that not just the practice of this is sinful, but the acceptance of it is as well. If you look at verse 32, after already giving a list of things that are just as unrighteous as homosexuality himself, itself, he says in verse 32, speaking of those who practice such, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, the death they are being spiritual death, goes on to say not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Do you see what the point is there? The writer is telling us that not only those who practice such sin as homosexuality are worthy of spiritual death, but also those who approve of the practice of homosexuality are worthy. So there again, we can't just make the argument, well, you know, I, I don't practice homosexuality, but you know what, I, I'm not going to say anything about anybody else that does it. Or maybe I don't practice it, but I don't condemn it. Because if you're not careful, the world will convince you to think that it's just as okay as any other type of relationship. But that's not true. I was in a bookstore several months ago. We were waiting to eat at an Outback restaurant. So someone had given my wife and I an Outback gift card. One of the brethren in the congregation, we're going to use that. Well, you know how Outback is. You've got to wait an hour before you can sit down and eat. So we went over to the bookstore across the way and walked around. And as I'm walking through the aisles, you know where I found myself and what section I found myself in. 
religious section. And I come across this book that says Christianity and the homosexual. So I pick it up. Being the interest, interested guy that I am, what are they going to say? I open it up. I begin to read. And there's a statement something like, well, the Bible never itself condemns homosexuality. And you know what I said to myself? Well, what Bible are you reading? Because you're not reading the Bible that I'm reading, right? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This, this book was, was pushing people to believe that God doesn't condemn it. And there's nowhere in Scripture that it condemns the sin of homosexuality. Well, as, as Paul here is writing to the Corinthians in chapter 6, we'll pick up together in verse 9. He's been dealing with problems among the church at Corinth. And he points out some things here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, that we need to take note of. He writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. There's another list that Paul gives. But within that list of all of these terrible things, and believe me, and I believe this is true, that adulterers and idolaters and drunkards, they're all terrible in the eyes of God. Why? Because it's all sin. But within that list of terrible things, what else do we find? We find homosexuality. And he says, if you practice such of these things, which includes homosexuality, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It cannot happen. As a matter of fact, in verse 11, we find out that some of the Corinthians themselves had practiced these things. However, he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. They were formerly practicing these things, which included homosexuality, but when they obeyed the gospel, through repentance and baptism, they had put these things away, and they were no longer practicing them anymore. So there again, when we go back to the, what the Holy Spirit has to say about these things, we find that God says, no, being gay is not okay. However, when we tune ourselves in to other things in our life, what we learn is something different. And we have to remind ourselves always that constant exposure to sin can cause us to lose our hatred for it. Please understand me at this juncture. I am not saying we hate the sinner. I'm not saying that at all. But we hate the sin. Because he said that's devil's, devil's tool. He's trying to get us to, to you know, normalize the sin. And if we just normalize the sin, then we don't look at it in a bad way anymore. Then before you know it, we may fall into it and think it's nothing. We've got this constant exposure all the time, right? We have what? We've got TV. How many times do you turn on your TV and turn on a show and not see a homosexual character? Everybody's got one now, don't they? Every popular TV show has your homosexual character. Every movie that you watch has your homosexual character. Why? Because they're fueling this agenda that's out there now. They, they have to keep it going. What about social media? I wouldn't know. But a lot of other people would. 
And when we get on social media, no matter if we're older or we're younger, when we start going through social media, what do you see popping up? Well, it's this promotion of this homosexual activity, just normalizing that again. And I'll tell you, young people, as we scroll through that and we look at that over and over and over again, the more we see it, the more we visualize it and see the acceptance of it, the more it's telling us in our minds, that's okay. But there again, God says it's not okay. It's not normal. And we've got to be careful. Let me show you this, this chart, and I hope this helps. How will I view homosexuality? You must, each of us must ask that question. How am I going to view it? Well, it's all going to be determined on the influences that I have in my life. Okay, there's, there's me. There's you. And we all have these different influences, right? We've got friends. And what our friends believe and think is going to be, to a great deal, an influence on you and I. Now, a lot of us in this building might have, have Christian friends, friends who view the scriptures in the same way that, that you and I do. And that's a wonderful thing. But also we have other friends too, don't we? I think many of us have other friends that, that may not view the scriptures as we view the scriptures. How do they think about homosexuality? What influence are they having on you and I at the same time? So we've got these friends that influence us, and then you've got these social media influencers. Let no one think that social media influencers don't have a great influence on the lives that we live. Oh, they do to a great extent, and we better be careful. We had better be careful, and if anything, we need to regulate this to the best of our ability. Because social media, in a lot of ways, is appealing to our young people in ways they're looking at that a lot more than they're looking at God's Word. And all this is being promoted by these social media influencers that people look at and they respect because they see their faces all the time. And they've got these, these ads that they're promoting these different things, and they must be good because they promote my favorite pair of shoes or, or whatever it may be. And then again, at the same time, we've got these fictional characters on these movies and these TV shows. And we sit around and we watch these things. And we tune in week in and week out. And we're watching these shows. And parents, here's a pet peeve of mine. Are we watching shows that approve and condone this type of behavior? My question is, why? Because if we sit around and we laugh at that kind of behavior and just act like it's just great and funny and then all that, what are we teaching our kids? We're teaching our kids that that's okay and it's normal. God doesn't want us filling our minds with that, nor does he want us filling our children's minds with that because they begin to normalize that because they look up to these people that they see on TV. They respect these characters that they see. And in their mind, that's real. And some of those people that are playing homosexual characters on TV aren't even homosexuals in reality. But they're again, Satan's using that as a tool. And then we've got friends maybe that are already confused. We may have some friends that are already, you know, convinced themselves, well, you know what, I just think it's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And they may influence you to think that same way as well. So look at all that influence that could be in the lives of an individual. Look at that. But what about this? Where does Jesus fit into the mix? You've got all this discussion going on from all these different areas. 
But here's where the, the rubber really meets the road, isn't it? Jesus is supposed to be in the discussion of the Christian. And Jesus primarily is to be dictating my thoughts and my actions. But there again, if I allow everything else to dominate the discussion and not allow Jesus to dominate the discussion, you know what's going to happen? Jesus isn't a part of the discussion anymore. And that's not because he left, it's because you left him. Because you did not want Jesus to dominate the discussion, but you wanted the rest of the world to. And brethren, that can't be. Jesus has to dominate the discussion of our lives, if not societal culture will. And that cannot be the case. And there again, let me say this. God does not accept homosexuality, and we should not accept it either. And there again, what I'm saying is, is do not hate the sinner. Hate the sin. You know what we need to do, we need to be actively doing, is trying to convert people out of homosexuality. We're trying to save lost people in the world. Look, the lost person in the world who's a homosexual is just as much a sinner as the drunkard in the world. And that homosexual needs the gospel just as much as the drunkard does. Or the adulterer. They all need Jesus. And we can't look at the homosexual like, oh, I can't touch that. Well, somebody's got to touch them with the truth so they'll ever come to Jesus and find salvation from their sin. We've got to do that. But at the same time, my point I'm trying to get across to you is, I have to understand that this is not normal. Just like being a drunk isn't normal. It's not right. And if I can convince myself in a world that's trying to convince me otherwise that homosexuality is a sin, then and only then am I going to try to help someone come out of it. We must do that. Hate the sin and not the sinner. Why? Because as the psalmist says in Psalm 5 and verse 4, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. And brethren, if we're going to have fellowship with God, we cannot have fellowship with wickedness either. If we're going to help people in homosexuality come to Christ, then first and foremost, we must see homosexuality as a sin. Secondly, we must see fornication as a sin. Jason, why do you have fornication in that list? Because homosexuality is a relatively new push, so to speak. Back when I was a teenager, you didn't hear about homosexuality like we do today. It, didn't, it wasn't talked about. But today it is. But here's one that's always been a part of our societal culture that Satan has been using for a long time, has always used, and will continually use to try to pull us away from what is true. And we always have to have in our minds that fornication is a sin. Now, so many people in the world today, you know, will tell you, that, well, you know what you can do? I mean, you don't have to get married. I mean, what you ought to do, the best way to do that is, is just, you know, just, just live with someone for a while. And that way, if it doesn't work out, you don't have to go through a messy divorce or anything like that. Just go try it out. Just hook up with someone and then shack up with them. 
But you know what God says about hooking up and shacking up? He says it's not okay. Even if the world says that it's okay, God says that it's not. Hebrews 13 and verse 4. The Bible says there that marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You know what that passage is telling us? That sex outside of the marriage relationship is a sin. Any sex outside of the marriage relationship is sinful before God. That passage isn't saying that, well, you know, if you're a fornicator or an adulterer, you'll stand before God one day and God's going to judge whether you're good or not good. No, that term, God will judge, judge is used there in the language of God will condemn. In the last days. Why? Because God has already said that such is sinful. Well, there again, what are we bombarded by today? We're bombarded from all sides that all this hooking up and shacking up kind of culture, it's just fine. But we must be reminded in every age that it is not. And if you're still there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll find that Paul makes that case very strongly. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. They're again correcting all these problems among the church at Corinth. Do you remember that one of the problems in the previous chapter was that there was a man among the church at Corinth who had his father's wife. He was guilty himself of what we're talking about right here, fornication. If you're reading from a more modern translation, I'm reading from the New King James, it uses the term sexual immorality. But I'm fond of the term fornication because it really gets to the heart of the matter. Now, tomorrow night, if the Lord wills, we're going to get a little bit more specific about this. But when when you hear the term sexual immorality, just think of fornication, illicit sexual conduct outside of the marriage relationship. Well, the Corinthians, obviously, before Paul writes this, they thought that fornication was okay. Back in chapter 5, Paul says, you know what, you haven't haven't rebuked this guy. You've been encouraging his behavior. And it seems chapter 6 gives us a little bit more information of what they were doing. Look at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Back to verse 12. It seems that Paul had been using this terminology even before he wrote this first letter to the Corinthians. That all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. It seems that the Corinthians were using that language in regard to fornication. 
much like that Paul is using it, especially in this letter in chapter 8 and chapter 10, in regard to food. Well, all things are lawful for me. That doesn't mean all things are expedient. That doesn't mean all things are beneficial. Well, the Corinthians were using that too to try to justify the fornication that was going on among them. Well, you know what? All things are lawful for me. Paul says, no, 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 no. That doesn't work with this situation. Your Christian liberty doesn't work in regard to fornication like it does with eating meat. Notice how he says that. He says, you know, the body and the stomach, they're made for one another. They go together. But the Christian and fornication are two things that never belong together. Ever. It's his point. And he says, and furthermore, the body, the physical body, the temporary one, and the stomach, God's going to do away with that one day and it's all going to be gone. But you know what? That resurrected body that you're going to have in Christ Jesus is going to live forever. And the only way you're going to have a resurrected body is to stay united with the Lord. A disciple doesn't join himself to a harlot. What's the purpose of a harlot? Is it not to commit fornication? Something that the Lord just condemns himself? Why in the world would a Christian think that they are to join themselves with someone who has the purpose to commit fornication? Therefore, a Christian always ought to strive to make sure their purpose is lived out in their life. That is to be a temple of God Almighty. And if that's going to be the case, God's Word must dwell in our hearts richly so that the Holy Spirit may dwell over there and then and dictate the actions that we take and the decisions that we make. What does he say then to these brethren about sexual immorality? What do you do with it? Flee it. Get rid of it. Stay away from it. Why? Because it's sin. But there again, right? Constant exposure to sin can cause us to lose our hatred for it. How many times this past week have you sat in your own home and watched a TV show regularly where fornication is being committed? And thought that was just a great show. I just love this show. I just can't wait till it comes on again. And the whole time we're watching it, what's going on? There's a relationship that exists where fornication is actively being practiced. What's that doing to our mind? Is that not indirectly programming us to think that such is normal? What about our children? I think brethren sometimes just push us off and just, oh, you're just being a hard case. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. I think God's a hard case about this, don't you? God does not want us to program our minds to think that sin is okay. But there we sit around and we expose ourselves to it constantly, and sometimes we can't help it, can we? But we can't allow the Satan and his vices to convince us that it's something that we should not hate. Let me give you the, the, the chart again and the list, right? All of these things are doing just that. What about our influence? In regard to fornication. Well, we've got friends. I hope they're good friends. hope they believe the same way in regard to this. But what about the social media influencers? When people bring things to me and show me things on social media that young people are looking at and even older people are looking at, I'm aghast. I'm sorry, I get loud sometimes. That's just me. I can't help it. I'm just blown away by it. I'm thinking, what are we doing? 
We're scrolling hour after hour, day after day, looking at these things that are promoting this very behavior that we're talking about right now. And we think that it's not programming us. What do you think it's doing to our kids, parents? One more warning. Know what your children are looking at on social media. If you're not going to take it away from them, make sure you regulate it. Because if you don't, you're guilty of programming them just as much as Satan is. We have to be on guard for those type of things. What about those TV shows that are again? Movies that are popular and we talk about how good they are. And then we got friends who are confused. Young people at the same time who, who may have friends at school. They're already confused, and you know they think fornication is okay because you know mom and dad do it. They did, they did it at home. They lived together before they married, and it was okay. They may still be doing that. So they're convinced that it's okay, and then they talk to you about it, and then you start becoming confused. Then you've got all these influences, but what about this influence? What about Jesus? Is Jesus dominating the conversation? If Jesus does not dominate the conversation, he's not going to be a part of it anymore. And if Jesus is not a part of the conversation, guess what we will accept? We'll accept fornication. It's just okay. Let's go along with it. It's good. And see, so we can't do that because such is not the Lord's will, is it? There again, we all probably know someone who's guilty of fornication right now. I do. And I'm sure you do too. But how are we responding to that situation? When these people come and they speak with us and they, they talk about their significant other, their partner, that they may have hooked up with and are shacked up with, how do we respond? Oh, that's so good, that's so cute. I love your picture. Like, love, uh, ding, ding, ding. You see what I mean? Y'all follow me. You follow me, don't you? We like that stuff on social media. What's it saying? I'm good with that. I love it. But God doesn't love it. He hates it. Do you see the problem? We have got to hate the sin much as God does. To love the sinner enough to try to get them to change their mind. Look, they've got to come out of fornication before they can make it to heaven because God said, along with the homosexual, the fornicator's not going to make it either. And those people need God too. They need Jesus. But they're not going to find Jesus if all I'm doing in their lives is encouraging and promoting their immoral behavior. Why do you think Paul told that boy, those Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, you've got to fix this. That boy's got to repent. It's no different with you and I. We must see fornication as a sin because God does. One passage we don't often refer to is Revelation 21. You've had that judgment scene picture there in Revelation. And now you've got beyond the judgment, right? And those whose names are not found written in the book of life, that is the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and the liars. But who did I miss? The fornicator. They're all going to have their part that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The point is, brethren, fornication is a sin, a sin that will separate you from God for eternity. 
And it's always one in every generation that is going to be pulling at us, old and young. And if we're going to remain godly in a world of cultural acceptance that accepts fornication, we must view fornication as a sin. Finally, let me, let me bring this one up. That's gender neutrality. This is news. This is probably the, the new kid on the block, so to speak. And I'm sure we're all aware of it by now. But this is something that I had to come to understand because in my day, I had no idea about anything like this. I didn't grow up in a society like this. So I had to go back and ask myself, well, what, what are we talking about here? Well, here's a few excerpts from an article that I think will help if you don't understand. The gender neutrality movement establishes the idea of language, policies, and other social institutions avoiding the creation of definite roles in society based on gender or sex. It also alters the language we use in major component of maintaining gender neutrality. Gender neutral, neutral language avoids the use of pronouns that are exclusively linked to one's sex and instead uses phrases like they when referring to an individual so that no assumption of gender identity is made. One more. The gender neutrality movement is an attempt to end the stigma assigned to gender, to create a more inclusive and all-encompassing society, and protect vulnerable individuals from discrimination stemming for a lack of understanding or acceptance. I pulled that straight offline. That's what they say about it. No pun intended. You see the things I've underlined here? Here's some major tenets of what we're talking about. This movement wants to avoid the creation of definite roles in society based on gender or sex. They want us to use pronouns that are exclusively linked to one sex, using phrases like they when referring to an individual. They think that it's an attempt to end the stigma associated with gender. Do y'all know where the stigma came from? It came from Satan. That's Satan's stigma. Do you know why that's Satan's stigma? Because God does not agree with the they movement. He doesn't. And I don't care who agrees with it. God does not. I don't care if the White House agrees with the they movement. I don't care if the school board agrees with the they movement. I don't care if the football coach on the sidelines agrees with it. God does not. And we have to accept that if we're going to be children of God. We can't have it both ways. Let me give you some, some definite points that can be made from Scripture to show that God doesn't agree. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. What we learn from God is, is that he created two people and established and distinguished those two people by gender. Genesis chapter 2. God's been creating, right? God's created a man. And he's created all these animals there. And he's allowed Adam to give names to these animals. 
But one thing Adam realizes is, I think it's one thing that God wanted Adam to see, is that you don't have a helper comparable to you like all these animals do. And Adam has to be thinking, I need one of those. So that's exactly what God gave him. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, listen to Adam, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. Now, that's, that's God's revelation. These allowed to be preserved for us through generation and generation and generation. And what do we find God doing there? Establishing a gender and another gender. A man and a woman. And it's not like it's changed. When you get to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4, we won't turn there for the sake of time. When Jesus is being questioned by, by the Pharisees regarding marriage and divorce, Jesus said, have you not read that which was written from the beginning that he who created them, created them what? Male and female. So Jesus goes all the way back to the garden to establish his point in regard to marriage and divorce. But he also establishes a very powerful point is that God put into place not just one gender, but what? But two. Male and female. That's hard to argue with. But furthermore, God created two people and distinguished them by roles. Some people get upset with me when I preach this. I hope you don't. I hope until this point that you have seen, I'm just trying to preach the truth. All I'm doing is reading the scripture and I'm just, I'm just revealing it to you again. But God has given us roles. Does anyone remember the, the old movies where you would see the, the two pilots in the fighter plane? Usually one guy would be flying the plane and one guy in the back would either be navigating or he was manning the machine gun. You remember that? What if one day they got up in the air and the guy with the gun said, hey, buddy, I want to fly today. Well, friend, that's not your role. You haven't, you haven't been given that role. What's going to happen if we switch roles? Well, crash and burn. Right? Because one man has been given a role to do this specific thing, and one man's been given a role to do this. Listen to me. They're both very important roles. One is no less important than the other. And so is this. We'll talk about this more, Lord willing, come Sunday. But just remember from what we know in Scripture, here in Genesis chapter 2, when we go back, God gave the man to be the leader. Our society is forgetting that. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. To the woman who said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. That's not Jason saying that. That's God. And remember, Jesus went all the way back to the garden and established that this principle that's been laid down is still in existence. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23. The husband is to be what? The head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Whose will is that? That's God's. 
The same God that says, I'm going to give you Jesus as a Savior, and he'll wash away your sins, is the same God who makes these statements, right? Is one message from God any of less importance than the other? Societal culture has made it that way. He gave the woman to be the helper and the homemaker. Chapter 2 and verse 18. Notice what he said about the woman that's been created, that he will create. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man shall be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And we get over into the New Testament and we find in Titus chapter 2 that the young women are to be taught to be pure, chaste, homemakers. Loving their husband and their children. That's their primary role. And please understand, that is not a least important role. That is a great role. But God has not only distinguished them by gender, he distinguished them by roles. Look at that one. God has distinguished us by anatomy too. Do you see the little phrase I put there? Duh. Look in the mirror. We're different. Men aren't women and women aren't men. God didn't make us that way. We can look at ourselves and see that God has made a distinction between one and the other. But what happens? Constant exposure to sin can cause us to lose hatred for it, can it? We turn on our TV and on the news channel and we see our president talking about, you know, I've got a transgender person here and, and uh, I've got this homosexual person here and that's coming from the White House. And we look at that and we say, well, it must be good. And then we look at the school board and the school board is saying, well, you, you know, you can't, you can't say this is wrong and you, you, you can't discriminate against this and with that. You know, I'm not saying discrimination is good. What I'm saying is, is there's one thing that's right and there's one thing that's wrong. And we can't accept those things as normal that God says is wrong. We just can't do it. That doesn't mean I have to be hateful to them. That doesn't mean I'm going to beat them up because they're that way. No. I want to love them. But before I can love them as I should to try to help them, I've got to realize that this is something that God hates. How much influence, though, do we have from the outside? Can we look at the chart one more time? I don't have to explain it all to you again. Third time around, right? You've got all these influences that are alive and very active, and you see these people face to face. You see these TV shows week in, week out. You go to the movies, and there it is, and you want to watch it again. And they're pushing the agenda. But there's Jesus. Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning created them male and what? Female. God made a man and a woman. That settles it. That has to settle it. And at the end of the day, what we have to understand is that Jesus does not dominate the conversation. He's going to leave the conversation. And all you're left with is what societal culture will feed you. And believe you me, they'll soon feed you that all day long. But we have to keep in our minds that God doesn't accept this gender neutrality movement. God hates it because it's sin. Let me emphasize this one more time. I hope I've made this point clear. Hate the sinner, do not hate. Rephrase that. Hate the sin. Do not hate the sinner. Let me say that again just to be sure. Hate the sin, not the sinner. We don't hate these people. But we want these people to have salvation in Christ. 
but I cannot help these people come to Christ if I accept and condone the sin that they're living in. That cannot happen. So I can't allow the societal culture that's around me to dictate my way of thinking if I'm going to help anybody come to Jesus for salvation. Let me say this. That I realize that at times, societal culture will agree with the will of God. At times, and at certain points, it will. But please remember this. At other times and at other points, it will totally disagree with the will of God. And if I'm going to be someone who's going to maintain fellowship with God, have that hope and promise of eternal life in heaven, then I'm going to have to let God and his unchanging will dictate the decisions that I make and the actions that I take. That always has to be in play. That's not an option. And as hard as it may be, to live in a world of an ever-changing societal culture. We must remain steadfast to the truth. We must hold on to it with everything we've got. And we must be these rocks that are standing in the midst of a dark world that seems to be getting ever darker. And people can look to us and not see ever-changing inconsistency and chaos. They look to a people who are totally consistent always standing where they have foundation to stand and they see people who have contentment and satisfaction because they know that the God of heaven is their God. And at the end of the day, brethren, if we're going to ever cause someone out of the darkness of sin, they must see consistency in our lives because they sure don't see it anywhere else. And if we're going to remain godly in a world of cultural acceptance, then the will of God and the truth that's found here in the scriptures must be our guide as long as we sojourn here on this earth. We're headed for home, you see. This isn't home, and we're trying to get out of here. But we're trying to take as many people with us as we can. And the only way we're going to do it is to be dedicated, diligent disciples. I'm urging you tonight to be one of those. Help me be one of those. Tonight, if you're in this building and you're not a Christian, if you have not rendered obedience to the gospel call, tonight you have the opportunity. If you've heard the gospel and you believe it, tonight you can come repenting of your sins, and I'm quite sure there's water in there. You can come repenting of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. You can rise to walk as a new creature with new life, and you can begin your sojourn toward heaven with people who will help you get there. Can we help you do that tonight? If you're here tonight and you're a Christian, but you've wandered and wavered, you've kind of detoured off the path, tonight, if you need help getting back on track, we're here to help you. We stand ready to do so. Won't you do so as we stand and we sing this song?